0: I'm absolutely convinced that behavioural science has got a lot to offer the veterinary profession and that if we could find ways to help veterinary professionals to leverage the insights and evidence that have accumulated over the years in other contexts and bring them in, then there's a lot to be gained. So what we need to do is develop user-friendly tools that enable veterinary professionals to benefit from the insights and evidence without needing to read lots and lots of books and, and train to be psychologists. And that's what we've been working on.
1: This podcast explores the role of behavioral science in understanding and addressing pet obesity. Thomas Webb, a professor in psychology at the University of Sheffield, will explain how research insights into owner beliefs and behaviors can help to support owners in the difficult journey of pet weight management. Professor Webb studies self-regulation, looking into how people control their thoughts, feelings and behavior in order to achieve their goals. Applying his research to the field of pet obesity helps us understand the main difficulties owners can face around goal setting and translating their good intentions into action. In this podcast, Professor Webb will discuss how veterinary professionals can tailor their support to the particular challenges that each owner identifies, ultimately helping them to change their behaviour in ways that benefit their pet. For more information on the science of obesity, visit the link in the show notes. How are you, Thomas? Yeah, all well, good, thank you. Great stuff. So starting off on this, why is behavioural science so key to successfully managing pet obesity issues?
0: The short answer is because pets are owned by people and how those people behave, uh, particularly with respect to feeding and exercising their pets is a key determinant of outcomes. So, you know, it's an obvious thing to say, but I think it's worth saying, domesticated dogs and cats, by definition, are no longer wild animals. They live with humans, they're fed by humans and for large part, Their behaviour, what they do day to day, how active they are, how long they sleep for and so on, it's determined by the behaviours of the humans that they live with. And so if we want to understand outcomes for cats and dogs, things like obesity, things like weight, but also other health issues, we need to understand how the owners of those cats and dogs behave and why they behave the way that they do. This requires that we bring together scientific disciplines that have got something to say about behaviour. So psychology is an obvious one. It's the science of human behaviour but also disciplines like economics, sociology, human geography. And so that gives us this banner of uh, behavioural science. We're just referring to any of the disciplines that are interested in people's behaviour. And the idea is if we can understand people's behaviour, then we can hopefully develop some strategies to support people to make changes to their behaviour if that's something that they need to
1: do or want to do. And is the role of behavioural science an area that's been known about for some time, or is it fairly new?
0: It's not new. Um, As I said, many disciplines have an interest in human behavior psychology has been around over 100 years probably longer um so you know classic examples are health psychologists who for a long time have sought to understand why people um behave the way they do so why do people keep smoking despite knowing the risks of lung cancer um why don't people do as much exercise as they as they say well we're going to do we all we all have good intentions in that regard um But I think interest in behavioural science took a significant step forward when the coalition government set up the behavioural insights team, and that was back in uh, 2010, so 12 years ago now. And they were based in the Cabinet Office with the aim of developing and applying lessons from behavioural science to policymaking. So it was a real step by government to take behavioural science seriously. And the insights team is still going, albeit now they're a limited company, they're not actually within government. And slightly unfortunately, it becomes synonymous with one approach to changing behaviour, which is this idea of nudge, which you have to... Google, people who have interested in that, I don't have time to talk about that today. Um, but that really set the ball rolling um, with behavioural science and, and it's become a big deal. I mean, the UN actually published a report last year on behavioural science. I really like their definition of behavioural science, actually. They describe it as the evidence-based study of how people behave, how they make decisions and respond to programmes, policies um, and incentives. But behavioural science is new to veterinary science. And I, and I think that's why it's exciting. So the aim of much of our work since 2015 is not really to do new behavioural science, to do new understanding of people's behaviour, but really to translate insights from other disciplines um, into behavioural, into veterinary science, hopefully in a way that, that benefits the, the discipline, but particularly owners and their animals.
1: On the veterinary side, you conducted a study in 2020 with Perina. What can you tell us about this?
0: Yes, this is our latest piece of work, and we look to understand how owners' thoughts and behaviour are associated with the weight of um, their companion animals. So to what extent do the way that owners think, feel and behave relate to actual outcomes like the weight of their dogs? So we recruited, um, I think, just over 3,000 owners from five different countries, France, Germany, UK, Italy and Russia. And we asked them to complete a questionnaire and to submit two photos of their dogs, as you would see from a body condition score template, so from the side on and then from above. Anecdotally, we've got some very interesting photos sent through that that didn't fit those requirements of people's dogs jumping into swimming pools and so on. But the majority of owners managed to send us some photos that we could then, um, we had trained some coders to assess the body condition scores of the dogs from the photos. And they could do that with a reasonable level of accuracy relative to veterinarians' ratings.
1: So what were the key insights, would you say, about owner beliefs and behaviours around canine obesity?
0: So we found some things that you might expect to see. So a key finding that many studies have found is that owners typically um, underestimate their dog's um, weight. So they rate their dog's body condition scores lower than the coders. So we found that around a third of the sample thought that their body condition score of their dog was normal, normal weight. So we did a five point scale. So they said it was a three on a five point scale. With um, the coders, the expert coders were rating the dog as overweight, so four or five. So about a third of people thought their dog was fine, but actually the dog was carrying too much weight. That's been shown in a number of studies, but we also, I think it was more nuanced finding than that, because there was evidence that the owners of overweight dogs were more likely to respond to measures in a way that acknowledged their dogs were overweight. So they they were more likely than owners of healthy weight dogs to agree their dog had a weight problem and was vulnerable to gaining weight. So I think that although the owners of overweight dogs do underestimate the obesity problem, they can recognise the dog is overweight and so might be willing to engage with weight loss programmes, perhaps more willing than previous work has suggested. And there was a study by Eleanor Raffan, um, who was a co-author actually on, on our study, published in 2015, which found that owners of overweight dogs were more likely to restrict their dog's food intake, although obviously the prevalence of overweight suggests that they struggle to do so, meaning that maybe we need some additional support to help them translate that, that willingness into action. And then I think the other finding I won't pick up on and one other finding and that was that again something I initially found counterintuitive so the owners with healthy weight dogs were more likely to report that they found pet ownership costly. so they said that they found felt that pet ownership required time and effort it compromised other activities and it felt like a chore. I thought well that's weird because they're not the ones that have got a problem so to speak um but we, we thought about the finding for a while and i think we realized that the owners of overweight dogs, might report finding pet ownership easier because perhaps they're just not doing as much. They're not putting as much effort into um, things like playing with the dog, exercising the dog, and thinking about what the dog's eating and so on. And I think it, it just speaks to the idea that providing appropriate care for any animal, but including a dog, helping it to maintain a healthy weight is probably more onerous and more time consuming than not doing so, it's not an easy thing. And so interventions designed to promote healthy weight might consider managing owners' expectations. You know, it's like the the age-old campaign, a dog is for life and not just for Christmas. That message that actually dog ownership is is quite challenging, to do it properly (laughs) well is is not an easy thing.
1: No, absolutely. It takes a lot of effort, yeah. So more broadly on behavioural science, what can your research on self-regulation tell us about barriers for owners?
0: Yeah, we mentioned the term self-regulation. So this is how I would describe my work before I moved into this area. So I've been a psychologist now um, nearly 20 years, and I've only been working in this area, applying my insights to um, understanding owners and in veterinary practice about the last, I think since about 2015. So before that, I would say that I was an expert in self-regulation, which is how people control their thoughts, their feelings and their actions. How do people do the things they want to do, think the way that they want to think? And a key insight from that area that I've tried to translate um, into my work in veterinary practice is this distinction between motivational barriers and then barriers that people encounter translating motivation into action. So it's almost like there are two problems. So some problems reflect problems of motivation. So some people aren't worried about obesity. As I said, a third of these owners think the body condition score of their dog is normal when coders um, actually would rate that dog as overweight and so that suggests that well this person isn't going to be motivated to help the dog to lose weight because they don't think that that's a necessary thing so there are problems in motivation but in many cases I think people are motivated they want to do the right thing they recognize the dog is carrying perhaps a little bit too much weight or maybe the vet's told them that the dog's carrying too much weight and that they want to do something about that but they struggle to translate that motivation into action so they might not know what to do Other people in the household might be feeding the dog. Maybe they can't afford recommended food. So the idea that people struggle to do the right thing isn't new. Popular proverbs like the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But so often, I think, in our professional lives, we focus on trying to educate people as our strategy for changing their behaviour. We think, oh, well, the reason they're not doing that is because they don't know the right thing to do. Well, actually, I think in many cases, people do know what the right thing to do is, but they struggle to do it. They're already persuaded. So what they need is um, support and help translating that motivation into action. So the COM-B
1: model of behavioural change, how can this best be used?
0: So the COM-B model suggests, it's it's nice actually, it fits with my previous point. It suggests that motivation alone isn't enough to um, change behaviour. So some of the older models in psychology said, well, once someone's motivated, they then act. And the the COM-B model suggests that actually behaviour needs three factors. capability opportunity, and motivation, hence the com. C-O-M, and then it's dash B. So those three factors um, cause behavior or or, um, lead to behavior. So it suggests we need to consider two more things as well as motivation. So capability refers to the idea that if you want to take action, you need a certain amount of knowledge, skills, and stamina. So if you want to feed appropriately, the person needs to know what and how much to feed their dog. Mm -hmm. Some behaviours are very challenging and require a certain degree of skill. So many people will use treats to stop their dog from barking or to maintain its attention. And they might not feel like they've got another way to to keep the dog under control other than to provide treats. And so the problem is not motivation. They recognise they ought to feed less treats, but they aren't capable of controlling the dog in any other way. So that's capability. And then finally, people need opportunity. So opportunity refers to whether the The physical and social environment is conducive to supporting the behaviour. So obvious examples include the the way that the dog's integrated into the household. So things like um, where does the dog sit when the family are having dinner? If the dog's allowed to sit at the table or next to the table, then that might make it a bit harder to um, control what that dog's um, getting. Who looks after the dog when the owner's out at work? Those sort of things. It's about the setup within which the dog lives, and, and that can afford certain behaviours and, and make others more difficult. So the idea of the combi model is that basically we need to look at three things. We need to look at motivation, but we also need to look at capability um, and opportunity.
1: Okay. So how can and should the intervention be best tailored to the challenge?
0: That's really the point of the the combi model. If we say, well, there's three broad things that can affect behaviour, then if we're trying to help the person make change their behaviour, we can target whichever one of those three things we think they might be finding challenging. An example would be that a different strategy would be needed for an owner who's not convinced they need to do anything. So, you know, if they, someone who believes the dog is happier carrying a bit of weight might need a different strategy from someone who is doing their best to manage the dog's weight, but struggles to do so. So maybe they're, they're using treats to manage the dog's behaviour. So, you know, for a motivational challenge like not realising the, the problems or the costs of obesity you're looking at the traditional behaviour change techniques like persuasive communication, information about the health risks associated with obesity. And an interesting, we've also been looking at the financial costs of obesity, because a lot of owners, rightly so, are motivated by the costs of veterinary treatment. And that's an important consideration. You might actually be able to motivate people by considering the financial implications of a, a dog gaining weight and um, having a health problem associated with that. Mm. But then, you know, that's not the kind of if someone's already worried about overweight and worried about the condition of their dog. You don't want to be laying all those sort of messages on top of that because you're likely creating even more anxiety um, and worry. So for that person where the problem maybe is to do with skills, they don't know how to manage their dog's behavior without providing treats. Then you might look to um, provide some sort of skills training. So maybe going, we talk about puppy classes, but there are also dog classes and those sort of things. So finding other ways to help the owner to build their skills so that they aren't having to use treats as as a way of managing the dog's behaviour.
1: So how can we help owners translate motivation into actions? I think this
0: is a key issue. I think we should start on the basis that most people are motivated to do the right thing. And so what we want to do is use behavioural science to suggest strategies that will help people to translate those good intentions interaction and one of the things that I worked on again before I came into this area but I think could be really helpful in veterinary practice is a strategy called if then planning mm-hmm. and it's basically um the idea that many people don't achieve the things they want to do because they don't specify them in enough detail so they just say oh, I want to get fit well what does how do you how do you get fit are you going to go for more walks are you going to go for a run are you going to start playing tennis are you going to do that after work before work really mapping out a bit more detail into how you're going to go about changing the behaviour. And I think the same thing works for the owners of companion animals. They, mm. they recognise there's a problem and they go, oh, I've got to help Boris to lose some weight. But they haven't really thought about what that means. So it's about picking a particular challenge. So maybe um, it's the dog begging for food. When they're cooking, the dog tends to be next to them. It's looking up at them. They're preparing their meal. They feel guilty and they also want the dog to leave them alone alone. And so they give the dog something to eat. So they recognise that as a challenging situation. But then it's also about planning in advance what you're going to do in those situations. So recognising that's challenging and thinking, well, if my dog's begging for a treat, then I'll give them a quick cuddle instead. And then they'll be pleased and they might go and lay down. (laughs) Um, So it's about planning in advance how you're going to respond to difficult um, situations. And this this type of planning has been... Um, I, would, I think panacea is a bit of a strong word, but, you know, it's been really, really effective in helping people to change their behaviour in other contexts. So helping people to change their dietary behaviour, promoting weight loss among humans. And so what we've been doing is to try to translate it into veterinary context and think, well, how can we help dog owners to, to make these plans and um, hopefully benefit from the effects of making these plans?
1: OK, so based on your research, you've also been looking and working on a volitional help sheet. What is this and what should it help with?
0: Yeah, so the Volitioner Help Sheet is our strategy for helping people to make these plans. I didn't invent the idea of a Volitioner Help Sheet. It was identified by a psychologist called Chris Armitage a good while ago now, 10 years ago. But one of the challenges of making an if-then plan is the person goes, oh yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. I don't know which situations I find challenging. or And then they might go, well, I don't know what I'll do in that situation. So the idea of volitional Volitioner Help Sheet is it's basically a list of potential challenges or potential opportunities that an owner might have in coming up and potential strategies for dealing with those challenges and the idea is that they match the two things together they identify things they find difficult so maybe a, a dog begging for food when they're cooking and then they identify what they're going to do in that context maybe give the dog a, a cuddle instead or throw it its toy And so they don't have to deliberate about what they're going to do when they get into that context they don't go oh what did i say i do when boris was looking at me like this you know they've got a plan And hopefully that should run off relatively automatically. So the idea is you link these two pieces of information together in this if-then format. If this happens, then I'll respond in this way. And it just helps us to sort of take out the complicated thought processes that are often difficult in these situations. You're trying to prepare a meal, for example, and the dog's there under your feet. You haven't got time to thinking about what to do.
1: Yeah, so you're just trying to get it so it's second nature, I suppose. It's a natural response from the owner and the companion animal accepts it as well. So it's just what happens.
0: Yeah, sure. It's it's possible that the dog actually starts to learn as well.
1: So in terms of veterinary professionals, how best should they use these insights to provide better support to owners trying to manage pet obesity? Obviously, it's a very large area within the profession.
0: Yeah, so I think this is is a big question um, and one that we're, we're working really hard on because... I'm absolutely convinced that behavioural science has got a lot to offer the veterinary profession and that if we could find ways to help veterinary professionals to to leverage the insights and evidence that have have accumulated over over the years in other contexts and bring them in, then there's a lot to be gained. Um, But what's needed, um, because veterinary professionals are trained in veterinary science, just like I don't know anything about the biology of a dog, you can't expect veterinary professionals to know all sorts of stuff about psychology so what we need to do is develop user-friendly tools that enable veterinary professionals to benefit from the insights and evidence without needing to read lots and lots of books and and train to be psychologists Um, and that's what we've been working on so I think a, a key starting point will be for Practices to take owner's behaviour as seriously as biological factors, as a potential determinant of outcomes. So, you know, biological factors are well accepted. Things like the neutered status, breed of the dog, medical conditions, all influence outcomes. Well, so does the owner's behaviour. And it's up there. It's exactly the same. But the nice thing about owner's behaviour is that it's more amenable to change. You can't change the dog's neutered status well, you can change it one way, but you can't change it back the other way. (laughs) And obviously you can't change its breed. But with with owner's behaviour, you can potentially make changes. And so if the veterinary profession starts to take owner's behaviour as seriously as these factors, then they can devote time within practice and consultation to talking to owners about how they manage their animals and how they work within their households, what the household dynamics like, who looks after the dog, what kind of things they do and don't do. And so one of the frameworks that we've been working with is called the behaviour change wheel. The COM-B model sits within the behaviour change wheel. It's an approach developed by Susan Mickey at University College London. And it recommends that those interested in changing behavior start by conducting what they call a behavioural diagnosis. And I really like that slight medicalisation of essentially a social science of behaviour because this behavioural diagnosis is about identifying key behaviours along with their potential causes. But I think framing it as a behavioural diagnosis might enable it to be brought into veterinary practice in the sort of same context of providing a, a medical diagnosis. You know, perhaps practices could consider specific consultations devoted to conducting these sort of behavioural diagnoses, mm. which are then followed by sessions designed to deliver a package of support, for
1: example. So it's sort of like a behavioural consultation that, exactly. that they could sort of run fairly regularly. Yeah. So what's coming in the future then? It seems like a really fascinating area. What's sort of coming down the pipe in terms of behavioural science research? And how might this help vets in practice in the future? So as I said, we're developing
0: tools that are going to help veteran professionals to leverage the benefits, but we're also working very hard to develop tools that will help owners to do the same. So the Volitional Help Sheet that I talked about earlier, which helps owners to make plans to support changes in behaviour, we're working with the Pet Food Manufacturers Association um, to turn that into one of their help sheets, which will be available on the Healthy Weight Hub, I hope, in the near future. But I'm also working with Purina to develop a toolkit for owners, which will be hopefully given out by veterinary practices to assist them on that weight loss journey. And it contains a range of tools that are translated from behavioral science that they'll hopefully be able to use to support them to change their behavior and hopefully improve outcomes for the dog.
1: Great stuff. Well, it's a fascinating area. There's loads of information there. And I think there's sort of clear that you're working on lots of areas and helping the vets with what is actually quite a tricky situation for a lot of them in terms of how they broach these sort of things in the first place.
0: Yeah, for sure. We could, we could do a whole other podcast on the, the challenges of communication, because one of the things we haven't talked about is that this is a difficult conversation to have yeah. with people. You know, you are broaching an issue around weight and everyone knows that issues around weight are tricky. But you're also kind of saying to the person, you could be looking after your dog a bit better. And like I said, the fact that most people are very motivated to do the right thing by their dogs is because they, they love their cats and dogs. They're as part of the family. And so you're sort of saying, actually, you're putting the health of a member of your family at risk. So that's another area I probably should have said we, we're doing a lot of work around that client communication. And I think there's lots of interesting stuff to be done there.
1: Yeah, probably topic for another day. But for now, that's fantastic. Some great information there. And thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Thomas.
0: No problem. Good to talk to you
1: that's it for vet times podcast this time thanks to our guest if you like what you've heard tell your friends and leave us a review on itunes but for now thanks for listening see you next time